Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Robin Williams. It's fall of 2009. Robin is rounding out his Weapons of Self-Destruction tour. The tour has had its hiccups, just a few stops in. It had to be stalled for Robin's health. Please, I've had heart surgery, thank you. But Robin wasn't hiding the fact that he also needed to do the tour to make money. On top of his day-to-day expenses, he now also had agreed to support his two ex-wives. He joked that he was going to call the tour, remember the alimony. And in marriage, I've learned this. In marriage, there's penalties for early withdrawal and depositing in another account. Remember that. It's almost poetic that Robin was back where he started, a hustling comic once more. Through the frustration and difficulties of his relapse and divorce, Robin said comedy was the one tool he could use, if not to make money, then at least to have a good laugh. You know, the difference between a tornado and divorce in the South, nothing, someone's losing a trailer, number one. It's like, mm, goddamn. Welcome to the final episode of Knowing Robin Williams for Macmillan Podcasts. I'm your host, Christy Westgard. And I'm Dave Itzkoff. I'm a New York Times culture reporter, and I'm the author of a biography on Robin Williams called Robin. We left off with Robin going from the pinnacle of success, starring in hits like Mrs. Doubtfire and Goodwill Hunting, which would get him an Oscar, to rock bottom. He goes back to the bottle after 20 years of sobriety and is forced to attend rehab by his family. He comes out of the 12-step program to a broken marriage and a stalled career. When you read off the list of movies he did during this period, you get a sense of how directionless his film work has become. There's Man of the Year, RV, License to Wed, and August Rush. You know, audiences just become much more dismissive of him in this era, and there's almost a kind of a knee-jerk revulsion to when you see his name on a marquee or on a poster, you know that he's involved with a project, you almost kind of recoil from it. You're all, you're already starting to think, what what is it that he's trying to do now? What level has he sunk to? Do I even really care anymore? The one star in this rough period is Night at the Museum, but there's still like the caveat to that film of the fact that Robin is not He's not the lead yeah, in this yeah. film. Yeah, right. Night at the Museum is very much a Ben Stiller movie and more of an ensemble film of all these different comedians playing these individual characters, the, the different museum exhibits and statues come to life, and Robin plays Teddy Roosevelt in that film, and it'll become a kind of mini-franchise and a role that he'll play a couple times more. And as successful as that film is, you could say that Robin had uh, something to do with it, contributed to it, but when you look at the overall makeup of it, it's not a Robin Williams film, so to speak. At the end of 2007, Robin moved out of the San Francisco home he shared with Marsha and retreated to Tiburon, a town in Marin County. 
There, he regularly attended AA meetings, and he'd often bike about 30 minutes north over to Mill Valley to hang out at the Throckmorton, which was a comedy club institution. It's a very kind of lived-in theater in the Marin County area, and they would have a comedy show every Tuesday night. And it was kind of journeyman comedians. You might get, like, uh, Dana Carvey coming out or Kevin Nealon one night or Mark Marin, But it's more sort of working comedians, people who have been at it for a while. Some people who Robin did know going all the way back to his start in San Francisco in the 70s and who were still at it in some way or another. And so some nights he would just go to the theater to watch other people and to just kind of hang out with that group and to feel like he was part of a scene again. Some nights he would go on, whether he was starting to try out material for his next tour or just to go up on a stage and to know that he was performing to an audience that really was excited to see him. It was during his time at the Throckmorton that Robin began developing material for his next stand-up special. He was surrounded by a community that cared for him enough to tell him the truth. And Robin was ready to be honest. Weapons of self-destruction, even from its title, I mean, you can already tell that it's much more personal and much more sort of self-scrutinizing. There's another drug. Another drug they don't tell you is a drug. It's a class 4 narcotic, alcohol. What that show was really trying to explore was his experience of relapsing and falling off the wagon and drinking again and going to rehab and also getting divorced and talking about what he felt like he had done and this awareness that he really had hurt people when he was drinking and the understanding that he had to reckon with that and make up for it. And alcoholics, we're like assholes. We can't wait to shit on everybody. Family, friends, we'll be like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, go fuck yourself, fuck you, fuck you. I'm fucked. That's what all of that was going to be about, or that was going to be the bulk of the routine, except for one more event in his life that he didn't know was coming. Robin had barely started touring for the show when he developed a nagging cough and bouts of dizziness while in Florida. He felt himself really getting winded quite often, that just something physically was off about him. And he was still a vigorous guy and was still... Uh, cycling and, you know, riding with his friend Lance Armstrong. And he went to see, you know, specialists who basically told him, like, you really can't be up on your feet for very much longer. If you don't deal with this soon, it's really going to be a huge problem and it could cost you your life if you don't deal with it now. Robin was diagnosed with an irregular heartbeat, a damaged mitral valve, and a broken aortic valve. Treatment meant a risky open-heart surgery that could itself be fatal. But the alternative was no better. So Robin moved forward with the surgery. On March 13, 2009, his family, friends, and managers came from across the country to be by his side. A new face joined the gathering, too. Susan Schneider. She was a 44-year-old artist who Robin had begun dating. There's some discrepancy over how he even met her, and certainly the story that both Robin and Susan have told is that they ran into each other at an Apple store and that he was wearing kind of camouflage pants. But of course, she recognized him right away anyway because he was Robin Williams. And so she says something to him like, how's that camouflage working out for you? And he says something to the effect of, well, you recognized me. So from that, you know, that's how they start to kind of get to know each other and and begin a relationship. But certainly uh, Robin's son Zach has told me that 
Susan and Robin were also in recovery together, that they were in a 12-step group together. And so they knew each other from that prior, and they were both going through 12-step at the same time. Susan's presence at the hospital rubbed Robin's family the wrong way, though. His ex-wife, Marcia, and his children, on the one hand, felt like that was a space that was really more for the people that knew him best, who knew him the longest, and, and her presence there just from the outset uh, you know, seemed a little bit off-putting, and they they perceived her as somebody who was not necessarily interested in getting to know the rest of them or being deferential to them in any way or even treating them like they were people who had this kind of long-standing history with Robin either, either as uh, a spouse or as a father. And there's a story that Zach told me about how before Robin goes in for his surgery and they're all meeting with the doctor who's going to operate on him and he wants to give them this kind of beeper that he's going to use, like if something happens basically during the surgery and we need to contact you in an emergency, summon you all together, this is the beeper that's going to ring. Who wants to hold on to it? And both Zach and Cody are about to kind of make their move and volunteer and then Susan steps in and says, I'll take it. And they were all kind of surprised by that, that like it's kind of feeling like who is this person that is kind of stepping in and superseding all these other family members. But all of this animosity was happening while Robin was sedated, so he was somewhat protected from it. And the difficult circumstances bonded him to Susan, who he'd later marry. When he finally woke up from surgery, he could see electric wires sprouting from his shaved chest where hair used to be. He spent 10 days hooked up to various devices and a morphine drip. But Robin eventually bounced back, and by fall of 2009, he was ready to restart his Weapons of Self-Destruction tour. And he had new material to share from his operation. And it's weird, too, because I had open-heart surgery. Well, let's let you know exactly what the fuck it is. Open-heart. People who have these kinds of open-heart surgeries also come away changed that there's a period of time while they're operating on you where they literally have to like stop your heart and take it out of your body and these machines are essentially keeping you alive for a few minutes while your chest is like cracked open and then they repair you and and people come out of that feeling kind of vulnerable but also like wanting to open up to people wanting to expose themselves and and wanting in a way to show their gratitude for the fact that they're still alive and they they come away changed people and he certainly was but after the surgery you get very emotional it's like you know it's like weird people go how are you god thanks for asking his fans met his openness with equal candor you know, he would do meet and greets sometimes before the show, sometimes afterwards, and would meet with other people who had also been in their own kind of recovery situations who were connecting with him because of that, because they had also been through something analogous, and now they kind of embraced him as one of their own. And then he becomes this kind of paragon to other people and realizing that people look up to him in that way, and that's a lot to have to carry. If fans were seeking answers from him, they'd come to the wrong place. Yes, he was on a healthier path with his sobriety and his heart surgery, but Robin was still very much a work in progress. He was working with a psychiatrist to come off of his antidepressants, and while Susan saw a happier man emerge, she also saw a more fearful, self-centered side of Robin that was terrified for his career. As the couple charted this unfamiliar territory together, 
Robin was offered a risky new project, an existential, darkly comedic Broadway play. Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo touches on, I think, a lot of themes and ideas that in some way encapsulate Robin or that, that uh, you know, are adjacent to his life, whether it is the military aspect of it that, you know, it is about some of the characters in the show are American service people. It does take place in Iraq after the invasion. And so it is kind of dealing with the Iraq war and its aftermath. And it does even it is a comedy, but it is also kind of dealing with identity and existence. And the character that he plays is the ghost of a tiger, but it doesn't require him. It's not like he puts on a tiger costume and walks around on all fours. A tranquilizer dart comes from out of nowhere, and I wake up in Baghdad. Sweet ass! So that was depressing. (laughs) He's just a person who just happens to have this very long beard, and he kind of... His character is able to, while the sort of action of the story is taking place, step away from it, comment on it, talk directly to the audience. All my life, I've been plagued, as most tigers are, by this existential quandary. Why am I here? So there is something sort of quintessentially Robin Williams about that character and what the character has to say, the, the kind of the cutting uh, sense of humor that the that the tiger has and this very kind of like no-nonsense way of looking at the world. I, I think that's something that he really identified with and, al- and aligned with. Major critics applauded the show, but audiences were jarred. When they saw Robin's name on the marquee, they came in expecting a light, comedic play. Instead, they were met with a challenging work. The show closed on July 3rd, 2011, after a short-lived run. If it had worked, it really would have sort of paved the way for more kinds of characters like that. And and who knows what else he could have grown into. But the fact that he was shut down in that, in some ways, I think, you know, it, it, it makes you want to sort of retreat even further into your comfort zone and what you know audiences will accept from you. So by 2012, Robin has been in the entertainment industry for about 35 years, which is just a staggering amount of time to be holding on to Hollywood and still active and still present. And Dave, you pose this question of why. Yeah, I, I think it's something that I think only he could know for sure, but he certainly continued to have a drive and just a desire to keep doing as much as his schedule and his energy allowed and whatever was open and available to him and doing movie roles of really whatever scale or size. I mean, sometimes they were studio roles. They were a lot more of the kind of independent roles, even if it was just a guest shot on somebody else's TV show. I mean, these are the kinds of things that he was willing to do and even taking one last shot for himself at a kind of traditional primetime sitcom role. That was something that he would not have contemplated many years prior, but now that was what was available to him. And in his mind, that was a challenge to see if he could do it again and something that he certainly felt like he had the the capacity for. That sitcom role was for CBS's The Crazy Ones. It was a promising project. CBS had an older viewer demographic that fit Robin, 
He would be allowed to improvise on the set just like with Morgan Mendy, and he would make more in one week than he did in a month on an indie film set. Its simplest perk, though, was that this was a regular day job that gave Robin stability. Isn't she beautiful? You have your mother's eyes. Dad. Do that thing that reminds me of her, please. Just once. It's so cute. I'm leaving you. That's it? That's her. feel like I'm back in court. Take half. Robin began filming in 2013 on set in Los Angeles. That meant he was removed from his community in Tiburon for extended periods of time. And it was a lonely time for him that was about to become even more isolating. In October, he began to experience a series of physical ailments. He had stomach cramps, indigestion, and constipation. He had trouble seeing, urinating, and sleeping. And there were tremors in his left arm. And sometimes his limb would just stop mid-motion. His voice was weaker, and his posture was stooped. And sometimes his mind just seemed to freeze entirely. I guess it's like life. You know, you start off in diapers, you end up in diapers. And while he's dealing with this slate of seemingly unconnected health problems, the crazy ones is flailing. Producers brought Robin's old Mork and Mindy co-star Pam Dauber on as a guest to try to reinvigorate the show. But when Pam came to set, she was shocked to see how changed Robin was from their sitcom days. Well, there's an emotional neediness that even his close friends feel like they hadn't seen in him previously. In, in the days afterward, Robin, she finds, you know, keeps calling her to say, you know, thank you so much for doing it and express his gratitude. And she feels like in some way he's trying to kind of rebuild a relationship with her there or, you know, maybe, you know, try to connect with her in a way that he hasn't in a very long time. But it's just not it's not quite happening. He's not able to express that. Or with Billy Crystal, who he has known for a long time and still has this kind of continuity with and that you know Billy and his wife go out with Robin to the movies and then they go out to dinner and Robin at, at least in Billy's telling of the story Robin seems very sort of you know quiet at dinner and kind of uh, distant or just his attention is focused elsewhere and then afterwards Billy and his wife are driving home and Robin keeps calling them throughout the drive home just to tell them how happy he was to see them. And then a few minutes later, he'll call back crying and he'll say, oh, I'm so embarrassed. Was I too emotional? And then calling back a few minutes later again, and that keeps happening. And so they're, they, they, even the friends can't quite pin down where this is coming from. Is it, is it some kind of like a desperation in him or is it something else? It's while he's in Vancouver and, you know, really at that point kind of feeling – uh, you know, pretty uh, depressed and and really especially kind of, uh, you know, paranoid and not wanting to socialize and see other people that his makeup artist, Cherie Minns, she makes this suggestion to him just in a kind of offhanded way of why don't you just try going into a club and making an unannounced appearance and you'll see how much people love you and how happy they are to see you again. And he has this kind of breakdown in her arms and he tells her, I don't think I can be funny anymore. And that is such a devastating thing for him to say and for her to hear that this is Robin Williams telling you, I don't know how to be funny anymore. The Crazy Ones ended after just 22 episodes. Robin's family pleaded with him to take a break from work to sort out his health issues, but he ignored their requests. He started filming the third installment of the Night at the Museum comedy franchise right away. But it was during this shoot that people started to notice something was very wrong. He's shooting in London or he's shooting in Vancouver. So there's a lot of travel involved. And on those sets, he's having 
memory problems that he can't he feels like he can't even memorize his lines he can't remember you know his his scenes and that to him is very troubling because if there was one thing that he was known for it was having a really kind of sharp and agile memory when he finished filming and returned home to susan he told her he wanted a reboot for his brain he started taking antipsychotic medication which helped some symptoms but made others worse Susan often had to talk Robin down from his paranoia, like when he woke up convinced that comedian Mort Saul was in grave danger. They went back and forth for hours, until 3.30 in the morning. Finally, on May 28, 2014, Robin got some answers. He was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. For Susan, it was a relief to know that they could now focus on more specific treatment. But Robin was less convinced. It was a devastating thing to to be told, to even think that that was what was wrong with him, that to, to be given this kind of, uh, you know, prognosis that is is really going to be degenerative, that there it's not whatever state he was in at that point, it's really not going to ever get better than that. And he had seen other friends, if not go through the exact same experience, uh, whether it was Richard Pryor or Christopher Reeve, other people who basically had their bodies kind of fail on them and and decline over long periods of time until they finally died. Uh, That was a pretty devastating thing for him to learn and to think about himself going through. It was the realization of Robin's worst fear, the disintegration of his mind and body. His son, Zach, described his suffering as silent. Robin retreated from the family out of guilt. He felt he'd let his kids down as a father, and he wouldn't accept their protest that this simply wasn't true. In June, Robin and Susan decided he'd temporarily enter another Hazelden addiction treatment facility like the one he'd went to earlier. They felt like he just needed to be in a place where he would be safe and be calm and be doing simple activities and also be monitored and be in a place where he couldn't leave. I mean, he would be someplace comfortable, but he couldn't completely leave the facility either. And so even though he wasn't having any kind of substance abuse problems, hadn't relapsed, they put him in rehab just because it kind of satisfied all these other conditions and would basically keep him locked down or keep him in a fixed place uh, and know that he'd be taken care of. On July 21st, 2011, Robin turned 63. But friends who called to wish him a happy birthday couldn't reach him. On July 24th, Susan saw Robin staring intently at himself in the bathroom mirror. He had a deep cut on his head, which he dabbed with a blood-soaked hand towel. He'd accidentally banged his head on the door, saying he miscalculated. On July 31st, His daughter Zelda turned 25. He sent her a necklace and a card, but he wasn't able to attend her celebratory dinner. Robin's good friend Rick Overton, who'd known him since the 1980s and often did two-plus-hour improv sets with him in these later years, described it like this. The light in Robin's eyes were dimming. When we come back from the break, it's the final act for Robin. And it's not as clean-cut an ending as the public has been led to believe.
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. On the night of August 10th, 2014, a Sunday, Robin and Susan settled in for the evening in the home they shared in Tiburon. Zach had seen him for the last time just a few days prior. And so at this point, you know, Robin has been out of that last rehab and he's been at home in Tiburon. And it's really just him and Susan in the house and his assistant and her husband who are still coming to visit like on a daily basis. And so all these other mental and physical symptoms that he's experiencing or has been experiencing are still continuing to go on. Uh, and to this point, he and Susan aren't uh, sleeping in the same bedroom anymore. He's kind of chosen to sleep in a separate bedroom in their house just because he's having, you know, night terrors and he's even, you know, he's having trouble getting to sleep and kind of thrashing around for hours and hours. So they just choose to, to sleep in separate bedrooms. He had an experience sort of earlier in the evening where he kind of has this paranoid delusion about these designer watches that he owns, that he becomes fearful that somebody is going to try to steal them. And so he gets a bunch of the watches and he puts them in like socks, in his socks, and he calls up his assistant and he says, I'm going to come over with these watches and I want you to hang on to them. So he drops off the watches, you know, sees the assistant, then goes home and he and Susan are, are preparing for bed and he comes into her room and he takes an iPad and, and, you know, Susan thinks that that's actually kind of like a positive sign because she knows that for weeks he hasn't even really been able to read or to focus on anything long enough to read it. So the fact that he's interested in the iPad she thinks is a good development and they, you know, they say goodnight and he tells her I love you and he goes into his bedroom and she stays in hers. She wakes up the next morning and the assistant and the ass- assistant's husband come over to the house and Robin is sleeping in and they think that that's also good because he just hasn't been able to sleep for a while. And Susan goes out that morning to run some errands so she leaves the house and now it's just the assistant and her husband and now it's getting kind of late in the morning and they still haven't heard from Robin and they go to the door of the bedroom that he's been sleeping in and they knock and there's no answer and they are, but they put a note under the door and saying, okay, if, if we don't hear from you, we're going to come in and wake you up. And on the one hand, the husband tries to go around to the back of the house and see if he can look in through the window and it's Robin's assistant who finds a way to kind of pick the lock on the bedroom door and opens it and discovers that Robin has hanged himself and he's dead. The 911 call came in at 11.55 a.m. Police were on the scene at noon. 
at a time when the family themselves doesn't know what has happened. They, they've, they have no idea why Robin took his own life or what precipitated it. Mr. Williams' personal assistant became concerned at approximately 11.45 a.m. when he failed to respond to knocks on his bedroom door. And they're only going to have a matter of hours before the whole rest of the world knows this, too. And they're going to be left with a lot of questions that people are going to have that they can't answer. At that time, the personal assistant was able to gain access to Mr. Williams' bedroom and entered the bedroom to find Mr. Williams clothed in a seated position, unresponsive, with a belt secured around his neck. The first public announcement came about three hours after Robin's death through a news release from the coroner division of the Marin County Sheriff's Office. An hour later, Robin's publicist issued a short statement. It read, Robin Williams passed away this morning. He has been battling severe depression of late. This is a tragic and sudden loss. The family respectfully asks for their privacy as they grieve during this very difficult time. The public response was swift. Makeshift shrines to Robin popped up in symbolic locations like on the bench in Goodwill Hunting or in front of the house in Mrs. Doubtfire. As fans across the world mourned, they also began to speculate. The circumstances of it were extremely shocking and they were uh, salacious or certainly, you know, there were parts of the media that, uh, you know, really wanted to delve into the darkness of it and the uh, illicit or seemingly illicit aspects of it. And so that got played up and, and just the the confusion, the uncertainty and in the absence of any sort of tangible answers for many days, all these other kinds of alternative theories start to emerge and people speculating that Robin must have killed himself because he was disappointed about his career or he must have had money problems and he couldn't, you know, afford to keep up his own life anymore or he had been, you know, murdered or maybe he wasn't really dead and he had faked his death and just all these increasingly kind of insane conspiracy theories that are just being propagated, you know, to fill the vacuum of, uh, you know, tangible information. And things only got more complicated from there. Even in the initial police investigation, they searched his computer and his phone and they didn't find uh, anything like a suicide note or something sort of explaining why he had done this. They didn't find any kind of, you know, uh, internet searches like he was looking for ways to kill himself. So no kind of evidence or even a kind of... Uh, you know, a breadcrumb trail of showing his thought process in those last hours. And it was about a week after his death that his uh, now widow Susan put out a statement acknowledging for the first time that he had been recently diagnosed with Parkinson's. And so that, to some people, seemed to affirm the idea that Robin had took his own life in a kind of active, deciding way. Well, when... The report came out of Robin's death. Here's comedian Gilbert Gottfried. I spoke with him about how the comedy community took the news. It was like the knee-jerk reaction was, um, oh, you know, like, we'll all have to sing Pagliacci, you know. He, he was the sad clown. And, uh, but then, of course, uh, more and more information came out what he was going through health-wise. 
So it, it wasn't uh, as simple as, uh, you know, gee, if we only knew we, you know, if only someone had invited Robin out for an ice cream cone, he'd still be alive today. If it had been how everyone first expected, that he killed himself because he was the sad clown, it, it would have been a much better story. There was a lot more information still to come, but it wouldn't come for many more months. And at this point, people already sort of thought they knew what the answer was. And so they weren't really looking for any more uh, clues beyond that. Then, in November of 2014, three months after Robin died, an autopsy report was quietly released. The findings it contained were truth-bending. Buried in a list of causes of death under the category neuropathological diagnoses, a subentry read, Diffuse Lewy Body Dementia. Well, Lewy Body Disease, uh, named after uh, Dr. Lewy, is uh, a degenerative condition so that this is due to abnormal proteins that are building up in the brain. That's Douglas Shari. He's a neurologist at Ohio State University's Neurological Institute, and he researches cognitive disorders and dementia. The research so far is pretty limited. Uh, we're just sort of getting our hands around how to diagnose correctly. It can be very difficult. There's a lot of um, people that are misdiagnosed initially because symptoms are similar to both maybe Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. What are some of the symptoms that people experience with Lewy body disease? The most common symptoms are what we call Parkinsonism, which includes uh, slow movements. They can get tremors. Some things that are very specific for dementia with Lewy bodies is also the uh, sleep disorders. Many times uh, they do move their arms and legs in their sleep. They can talk in their sleep. They can even sleepwalk at times, but they're thrashing their sleep, you know, slaying the dragon or whatever they're doing. Another typical symptoms are uh, hallucinations, and these are usually visual hallucinations, so they see things. There's a little boy there in the corner of the room, or uh, oh, looks looks like there's a small fire over there by the chair there, for example. And a lot of times, early on, they may understand that, okay, I think they're not real. They're not quite sure, and so sometimes they have to get up, shuffle over towards the object. If it goes away, they go, okay, okay, it must be a hallucinations. But as a disease progresses, many times they then can't tell whether they're real or not. They think that they're very real and, and uh, will dispute people who try to say that they're not. One thing I've been wondering is for a person like Robin, who's known for having such a rapid-fire mind, did that at all affect how he experienced the disease? Well, certainly. So every, we're all unique, different talents, and some of the most exceptional people, of course, have these great talents, but it may come at a price as well. Even if you do treat these symptoms, it doesn't mean that you're going to eliminate them, and maybe in combination with some pre-morbid personality, uh, most likely was a combination of these things that uh, had him commit suicide as opposed to the uh, typical person with uh, Lewy body disease. And it was that last piece of the puzzle, this diagnosis or this finding that he did likely have Lewy body that does really kind of account for all of the different elements. And it does 
leave, unfortunately, a kind of mystery or a, a cloud over his death that we can't know, even in his last moments, how much of an active choice or decision he was making. For all the parts of life Robin allowed us to be a part of, there was one sliver of his routine that was sacred and saved only for him. For the 30 to 45 minutes before each of his shows, Robin would shut himself in his dressing room, and no one was permitted to enter. It might be something that he just did to preserve a certain mystique about himself that, like, you're never going to know what goes on in that exact period of time, and all you can do is kind of guess, and so that makes that a little bit more curious. Maybe that was deliberate on his part, but I think it also speaks to, you know, how he presented himself to everyone, not just to me, who only got to write about him and be in his presence for a little bit of time, but people who knew him for much longer and over many more years, that even they felt like they saw him in certain capacities and then there were other parts of him that he withheld from them, even his family members, even people that he was intimate with, uh, didn't feel like they got all of him, that everyone had their version of that experience, whether it was literal or metaphoric, where he went into a room and did something else and became a different person, and they didn't get to see that. Everybody who knew him went through some version of that. And I guess we're kind of greedy and wanting to just constantly have more of what we love. And But, you know, I mean, it's also performers and stars belong to certain eras. And, you know, he came alive and was most famous and popular in a certain period. And that's, that's the period of time that we're always going to think of him in and that he'll always define. And by and large, they don't span longer than that, certainly not even for as long as he did. So we are kind of greedy for wanting even more of him but that's that's kind of how it works that people get this one if you're lucky this one period of time that you belong to and when you're gone that era ends that's all for this final episode of knowing robin williams thank you for listening as we explored the life and the work of the great robin williams robin is sorely missed but he leaves behind a body of work that really touched people's hearts and tickled their funny bones. I hope you enjoyed listening and learning about Robin. And if you or a loved one are struggling with your mental health, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Line for free crisis support. And learn more about Lewy Body Dementia by visiting the Lewy Body Dementia Association's website at lbda.org. Thanks to David Skoff. Check out his book, Robin, to learn even more. And please be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If Robin had an impact on your life, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email at knowing at mcmillan.com. I'm Christy Westgard, your host and producer. Thanks so much for listening. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.